Why do you do these things? I don't understand why you do these things. Don't lie to me! I don't want to hurt you. I only want to talk to you, okay? Yeah, you can trust me. You know you can. Welcome to Now Playing's Maniac Retrospective Series. You shouldn't be so scared, timid man. You should take off your coat, Steve, for a little while. Hosted by Stuart. Oh, you're so good. You know, I like this with my clothes on. Marjorie. Please don't scream. You're so beautiful. And Arnie. Why did you need those other men? They didn't love you. I did. I loved you, I needed you. There were so many men. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You think they don't know? They do. I heard it, and I know. Listener discretion is advised. I told you not to go out tonight, didn't I? Every time you go out, this kind of thing happens. Today we're discussing Maniac, starring Elijah Wood, Nora Arnzeter, Genevieve Alexandra, directed by Frank Calfon. Don't look so horrified. Just relax. It's me, Arnie, co-host of Now Play. Stuart in LA. And Marjorie. Well, I think I need to just issue a correction on something I said on the last show, where I said this film will be totally different than the 1980 Maniac, the same only entitled. Well... They take big risks, but content-wise, there's a lot of callbacks. But uh, you cannot say that they just redo it. I mean, I note three huge gambles that they take in doing this. Not the least of which, Joe Spinell, big guy, character actor, creepy just by looking at him, replaced with a hobbit? I mean, come on. I mean, Elijah Wood as a killer, not unprecedented. He did it in Sin City. But I think that if, yeah, you were going to hang a horror movie on any actor in 2012, he would be on the bottom of your choices. Well, let's kind of walk through all of the choices here. First, why remake Maniac? I didn't think it carried that big of a name that this is one you dig out of the archives and license to remake. I don't know why they did it. Stuart, in your research of the bonus materials and things, is there any why this film? The French. The French love it. Uh, We'd have to start with Alexandre Aja, who is a pretty noted horror figure at this point. I don't know that we've ever covered him before, but he's racked up a real name for himself in about a decade's time. High Tension is the one that I know, the French lesbian slasher. I think we know him best from Piranha 3D. He directed it. Didn't see that. And the remake of The Hills Have Eyes, which was pretty good. Yeah, didn't see that either. Yeah. And Mirrors with Keith Sutherland. Didn't see that. 
Yeah, but uh, the French love this. This was a huge hit in Europe. In fact, by some estimates, they were saying that Maniac, the original 1980, made more money than The Shining. So Maniac is to horror films what Jerry Lewis is to comedy. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know if those statistics are true. I think some of them were quoted by Spinell, who everything he says is suspect. But I can say this. All it takes is one big fanboy to love something in a position of power to get something made. I think it was a, a, a love affair with Alexandra Aja and the original source material. But strangely, he chose not to direct it. He gave it to his friend, an American, to make, Frank Calfon. Then the second question, although I have my suspicions... You already brought up Elijah Wood, and I know why Elijah Wood do it. I mean, you called him a hobbit. I think everyone calls him a hobbit, and I imagine he's trying to show his range and do a horror film to... Not be a hobbit. Yeah, show that he can do other things, but it is counterintuitive casting. Yeah, the opposite of Joe Spinell. And again, I think that's the way to go. If you're going to remake something, do it in a big different way. I, I love the idea of taking a casting and turning it on its head. Yeah, who would think Elijah would? And it's very much going back to Psycho like we did with the first Maniac movie. You think Anthony Perkins, he's a very kind man, very unassuming. It's hard to believe he's actually the killer. You look at Elijah Wood, you're like, oh, he's a little tiny guy. He looks kind. He's got some big ears, but... He's not going to hurt any. Oh my God, he just killed somebody. Yeah, no, if it works, it'll be great. And I thought he did work in Sin City. I thought that he was effectively cast against type. So I was okay with him coming on board. I don't know that we'll ever cover it, but his segment was my favorite, where he played the yellow bastard. But the one thing I knew about this film coming in, and I think when you'd said, Stuart, that you wanted to do Maniac in the remake, and you said Elijah Wood, and you said all first person. Now, that's an interesting thing to go. And when I was watching it, I kept thinking about the found footage films. Like, thank God they didn't go that way where he was just obsessed with his iPhone or something and he was filming everything. But it's really just a step past that, that we almost entirely this movie is shown from the perspective of Frank. Is that one of the risks that you're referring to there? Definitely. And I don't think almost entirely. I think 100% of everything we see is through his optics. I've only seen this done twice before. In all of the movies I've ever watched, I can think of two films where it wasn't just, oh yeah, cameraman, and they've got to have a reason to keep grabbing the camera and taking it through the story. No, the camera is a character, and essentially that puts the audience in the story as the person. There was a 1947 Philip Marlowe movie called Lady in the Lake. Wasn't very good. And then there was 2009's incredible mindfuck, Enter the Void, which is, I actually think, where they got the idea to do this. It was a European production by Gaspar Noe in which we see first person, a drug dealer, OD, leave his body and then try to reincarnate. And it is psychedelic to the max. It's an incredible film. Kind of dumb, kind of annoying, and way too long, and yet I'll probably never forget it. I hadn't seen a first-person film entirely I can't think of anyway. Like you say, it's always grab the camera or something like that, wear a GoPro or something. But it's not uncommon to start in a killer's POV. The original Maniac, I thought it ripped off Halloween. We didn't talk about it, but we start the very first kill when we're seeing Frank. 
watch those people on the beach. It's a first person perspective. Took me right back to the opening shot of Halloween, where we're seeing the opening kill through the eyes of little young boy Michael Myers. So seeing it for a few shots, a few scenes, the opening of a horror film, that I'm used to. Seeing it for the entire movie, I wasn't sure how it would work. I wasn't sure if this was going to be real time, like one of those movies where it takes a hundred minutes to run and it takes place in a hundred minutes. They don't hold to it. It is not all one shot or anything like that. They're more than willing to cut and keep it feeling cinematic, even though we're always in his point of view. I'd, I'd say we're 98% his point of view. You say a hundred, we'll talk about the couple times we're not, but there's fades, there's montages, there's cuts. We aren't in real time. They aren't limiting themselves to being able to pull off this performance where every scene must never cut or anything like that, which I think aids it and not feeling as gimmicky. It actually feels like a movie versus found footage, which feels like I grabbed a camera. Right. But other risk involving this is the fact that this is video and it's slick and is set in sunny California, Los Angeles, 2012, that feels entirely different than having grainy 16 millimeter in New York in 1980. You might be able to do all of the plot points of the original movie, but you're not going to have the same feeling. A hundred percent of what was so effective, and the reason why I gave it the Green Arrow last week, was it was such an ugly, provocative film. Here, they're going for beauty. Yeah, I actually really liked that because the movie I had watched before this remake, the movie I'd seen immediately before, was the original Maniac. And man, I was like, I forgot what high def looks like. I forgot that movies could look this good on my screen. I mean, just the crispness. I like the aesthetic of this. I like the color that comes through. The last movie was so desaturated. This one, I think, just has an amazing high def look to it that I love. I just, I'm more into it. I know, Stuart, you like grain, you like grit. I like slick. I like colorful. This meets my aesthetic. And I think it's just how we think of LA. There's, It's been a trend lately. I've seen a lot of movies that fetishize, give it that 80s Michael Mann vibe. I don't know if you guys saw the movie Drive, or recently there was a movie called The Guest, or Jake Gyllenhaal had one where he was Nightcrawler, the photographer. They really like to characterize now these noir movies to look like they were Manhunter or something from the 80s. And <laughs> it's funny you say that, because I actually thought the opening score to this was taken from Miami. Vice. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, if you see Drive, it was a movie that came out the year before they made this. They're clearly channeling that. So why don't you give them the plot again? Well, I say it's a lot the same, but strangely, my plot summary is a bit longer here. There is more story going on. A serial killer is on the loose in Los Angeles. An unknown stalker is killing women and removing their scalps. Police are investigating, but don't know that the killer is just Frank, an unassuming man in his early 30s. Frank leads a fairly quiet life, running the mannequin restoration shop he inherited when his mother died. But anytime Frank gets a sexual urge, it turns homicidal. A hookup from a dating site seems to be going well. I mean, his dick's in her mouth. That's usually a good sign. <laughs> but he strangles the redhead as she goes down on him, and then seems to speak to his mother, asking, Can't I have just one without you getting in the way? You see, Frank is insane. He was very close with his mother growing up, but watched her engage in a variety of sexual acts with various men while doing cocaine. It was the 80s who didn't. 
insane, Frank eventually killed his mother and now finds himself overcome with these homicidal urges that manifest initially as migraines. But that insanity seems to abate when he meets Anna, an art photographer who's doing a photo shoot on mannequins. As Frank has a collection of antique restored mannequins, Anna wants to shoot them and even rent some for her photo exhibition, which, if it goes well, may get the artist a show in New York. But Frank sees Anna's interest as affection. The two go to a movie, have a meal, and Frank sees it as a date, unaware that Anna has a boyfriend back in New York. When Frank finds out and meets the boyfriend who thinks Frank is gay, Frank's rage leads to another homicide, this time killing Anna's agent, Rita. Anna is upset over her agent's death, blaming herself for not walking Rita home. Frank goes to comfort her, thinking that's when he can make his move and sleep with the photographer, but he slips up, mentioning that he knows Rita lived just three blocks away from the gallery. While Frank tries to cover up how he knew, Anna is frightened, and when she asks Frank to leave, he goes into a homicidal rage. She fights back, but Frank acts as her neighbor in the face before capturing Anna and taking her back to his place. Anna escapes by stabbing Frank in the chest with a mannequin hand, which doesn't really sound dangerous, but it has, like, rebar in the middle. But he gives chase. Anna then jumps in a stranger's car, but the car hits a post, Anna's thrown from the vehicle, and dies. Frank returns to his shop, where he puts Anna's scalp on a mannequin in a wedding dress, but has visions of all the other mannequins coming to life, mocking him and attacking him. These phantoms dismember Frank, who actually appears to have died from the wound Anna inflicted as a SWAT team storms his shop, and credits roll. So the opening. The opening starts where in Frank's point of view, and he's stalking some nameless woman. And you're not sure if it's New York and if she's a hooker. This is something very common to anyone that has gone out to the club scene in Los Angeles. Seeing those girls come out of the club in those impractical shoes, that can <laughs> only be downtown LA. A neighborhood that has really changed since I've moved here. In the last 10 years, I gotta say, downtown used to be a place that unless you worked there, you didn't go, and now has become kind of a scene. It is kind of filled with these kinds of party places that they look like storefronts to fast food restaurants, but you find out it's some place. Yeah, I didn't think they were hookers. I knew they were coming out of a club. I didn't know what city it was in, but I was immediately trying to get used to this point of view of Frank. And it is Frank being played by Elijah Wood here. He even calls back to the old Frank. We hear a little bit of the groaning and moaning and the breathing, but he stalks her back to her apartment. She sees him. He's in a car. She starts to run. But he gets to her apartment. He's like, I know where you live. It's okay. So he gets to the apartment before she does. I'm trying to decide how believable it is that she doesn't see him in the hallway as close as the camera is to her. Does the movie cheat? I mean, if he was really standing right there, wouldn't she see him? I would think so. And I kind of wondered that too, because he didn't seem very covert at times with the point of view they were doing. But then again, I think a lot of it was done for effect and maybe they are cheating a little to get the reaction they need out of us. I don't know that when you started this movie, you would recognize it was a point of view. I mean, when you just see the girls coming out of the club and being hit on, you just think it's a wide shot. It's not until the car motor starts and he's sidling along her that we realize it's a point of view. What I love is the cut. That The next cut we see is up high with her getting out of the taxi cab we saw her get into. He's beaten her there. He's got a big knife. He cut the power. The reason why she can't see him, it's completely dark. 
And I love, I love the way that we now know this movie is not going to let us get out of that point of view. At this point, it's not just a gimmick. It's just not, not an opening kill. It's everything we're going to see. I wouldn't have known that, honestly, because again, Halloween is my go-to. We're in that first person point of view for the entire first kill. And this first kill of poor Judy is astounding. But they've cut, though. I mean, that didn't surprise you that he went from outside the club to on the fire escape and and that it was still him, that we can hear her coming up. She's on her cell phone, of course, blabbering on and on, and we can hear her coming up the stairs, and he's just sit, you know, looking down the railing watching her. No, that didn't shock me. That I'm glad they didn't go real time and we're not watching him drive there, but I still wouldn't have known the whole movie was going to be first person had you not told me until after the opening kill. If they still were doing first person after the first death, which is when it stopped for Halloween, then I'd know it's going to continue. But right now, this could just be like the first maniac. It's first person until the first throat is slit. So no, the cut... I was just glad they were cutting because I was very curious. I mean, I'd known for a year this was all first person. I was wanting to know how found footage it was going to feel. It doesn't feel at all found footage, thank God. But yeah, Judy, she doesn't even make it in her apartment. That was a tremendous kill, though. The knife through the throat. I didn't see it coming. It's a CGI effect. It's obviously one. Yeah, they didn't really kill somebody, Arnie. Well, it's not a practical is what I'm saying. It's mostly practical. They had a a knife stub and they stuck her throat with it. And then they CGI the knife. We can see it through her mouth, cutting off her vocal cords. That's the CGI part. But the rest of it, the scalping, I mean, it's done right there in front of us. All practical makeup effects. Oh, I didn't know that the scalping was practical. I thought that was CGI too. Now, again, I said last show, I didn't think this would be a remake of Maniac. I just thought it'd be a killer movie. So when he kills her, I'm like, oh my god, that is brutal. A knife through the chin. I mean, that takes some strength. It takes some force. It takes some crazy. No, there's no bone there. Feel it. (laughs) And to see it through the mouth. But then when he scalps her, I'm like, holy shit. They're really going with the stuff Frank did last movie. He scalps her. He goes back. He puts it on a mannequin. That was more shocking to me than anything you're talking about with the cutting and the first person photography was that they're really going with the same Frank, the same mommy issues, the same scalping and the same mannequins. And they're not going to cheat on the gore. This movie, I think, was released unrated, and it feels just as bloody and violent. Different kind of violence. A different feeling when you watch it, but just as thick in red stuff here. Want to point out, Elijah Wood is on the set of this movie every day. Even though we only see him when we catch him in a mirror here and there, he is always just off frame by the cameraman. They were actually literally tied together giving his performance. He usually plays one of the hands in any given scene. That Because there's a cameraman in between, someone else had to be an Elijah double and be the other hand. And, and Elijah said it was fun to play this part because he'd have to realize, like this opening scene, Do I want to be the hand that's caressing this woman, or do I want to be the hand that's cutting this woman? (laughs) I honestly thought before watching this film, this seems like an easy paycheck for Elijah Wood. Show up for a couple days, get seen in a reflection, get a hand double, do some voiceover work, and you're the star of the movie. So I I did read that he was on set every day in one of the hands, but I had thought even while watching this movie the whole time, yeah, he was probably on set for a week. He's a big star. 
He didn't have to, but I do think it helps, and I think he wanted to. And the commitment is, I mean, that's what you want to see, right? I mean, we want to see a Joe Spinell commitment to the crazy. I was shocked because I didn't think these were his hands watching this part. I kept thinking, those hands are awful large to be Elijah Woods because he's not a very big person. And then once Arnie told me that he had read that it was one Elijah Wood hand and one cameraman hand. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That would be, I was probably focusing on the large hand, but. Not a cameraman hand. I just want to point out, there's three people standing there. There's a man who's literally paid to be other hand. How can I get that job? Have the <laughs> hand that looks exactly like Elijah Wood's. Your hands are tiny. I think that would fit. But I was impressed with the detail. I mean, as Frank is dating various women in this, I would think they'd look at his hands and go, wow, those are some beat up, cut, scabbed and hands that look like you went to a work site and forgot your gloves that day. And I wondered if it was like an obsessive thing with him killing. And then we learn later on what actually happens to his hands. Yeah, he scours them with yes. uh, like really br- like intense. It's like steel wool. Oh, yeah. 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 So that was just a hell of an opening. And I'm like, wow, it's obviously a very different kill than a couple on the beach. Being in California, they very clearly could have gone that way. They decided to go with the club and girl, but very different. And then instantly, the next scene, he's online on a dating site trying to find a woman. And that's where he got Judy. We realized that that's all that he's been doing. That Judy's profile is up. Click. We're done with Judy. Let's find another one. Let's see what Red Lucy 86 has. So did Judy know him? Did they date and that's how he knows where she lives? Or was he just stalking her from the site? I mean, that is something never explained that I kind of wonder about. Yeah, but I mean, in this day and age, with so many people posting so much personal information, it wouldn't be so hard to stalk anybody with a Facebook profile and a couple other things. I I just take it to mean whether they ever went on a date before or not, he had been connected to her through a online dating site. And so that's his modus operandi in this film. But yes, Cupid's Rejects, not a real site. (laughs) But I would think that a dating site as the Craigslist killer did learn, the numerous Craigslist killers, is that it's not a good place to find your victims. You need to find them the old-fashioned way without technology. Yeah, they trace your IPs. I would think that the police would be able to find him quicker, especially when it's made very clear that's how he's doing his killing with poor Red Lucy. Yeah, and here, it's worth pointing out, you know, she wants to see his picture. He doesn't have one on his profile. He sends a real one. He actually goes, and it's the first time we're realizing it's Elijah Wood, if you hadn't seen the credits, that is, is the first image we have of the actor's face is a picture he's sending of himself after scanning through a whole database full of them. Yeah, it's a minor thing, but I love when movies take real photos of actors from their childhood and things, and you can tell that's the person, and you saw young Elijah, teenage Elijah, and then... I really do like that, too. He was adorable as a little kid, with those big eyes. I think he's got the good son in there. He had done a thriller before with Macaulay Culkin as the killer. That's right. I remember that movie. That one with the tree, where he's in the tree. That was a big scene in that movie. They're clever here. They make a lot of allusions to other thrillers that have come since Maniac. And obviously, I think we're going to be talking about Silence of the Lambs next, once he gets Red Lucy home and she breaks out the vinyl. Oh, goodbye, horses. I got giddy when that song just started it's just like two notes of it and i'm like i'd fuck me (laughs) 
they were worried it was a little too on the nose, but they said people laugh, and I certainly laughed. I mean, you know where it's going. You knew where it was going anyway. But yeah, for her to invite that comparison, yeah, it was quite something. And unlike the last movie, where I really felt no attachment to what was going on other than just general revulsion at humanity at large. I am so into this movie. I think it's partly the way that it's filmed. They, you are there feeling about it. But when they're up in that room and she's starting to take off her clothes and all of that, I'm feeling for her and I'm feeling like Frank too. It's, it's quite a thing to have this perspective. I see what they're going for here. I think it's really effective to ask us to be the killer. I'm into this movie. I knew by this skill, I was really into this movie. And again, the suspense kind of going for it because unlike Frank the last time where he's telling the hooker not to take off her clothes, here he seems more than game to let her take off her clothes and he's laying on the bed. I love that she had a full mirror above her bed so we can see Elijah Wood there. Not that I ever really wanted to watch Elijah Wood get blown, but I get to kind of see that. He looks not unlike Joe Spinell did with that hooker. I mean, I feel like this is a recreation of that hotel hooker scene and that he looks kind of petrified, just lying there, not really moving, not really into it. Yeah, he, and he had a horrified look on his face. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this. It just did not look comfortable for him. No, but I can't say at any point in this movie that I ever felt like I was in his head. I was always watching him third person on the screen. This did not make me the killer the way a first person shooter makes me the shooter. I never had that feel with it because of the cuts, because of the cinematic feel to it. Now, when the camera would stalk someone, I'd feel worried for them. But I never felt more into it because I was seeing through the eyes of a killer. I disagree. When this choking is happening, I mean, wow, it's intense, first and foremost. It's the last time she was still screaming all the way until she was dead. I'm like, obviously, he's not choking her hard enough if she's able to make noise. Here, this choking feels real. It feels like I am choking someone to death. I never had that feeling. So you can you can disagree. But I mean, I never had that way. I did not feel it either. In fact, I never once thought this was a, like a killer point of view for us. Like the audience is a killer. I just thought it was an interesting take because obviously he has mental problems and he's not right or else he wouldn't be doing this. But I, I just like the way they did it and they showed him very sparingly. And all the times they showed him, if you look, it's when he's under duress and uncomfortable. That's the only time you saw the camera actually do a shot of him. I just always felt like the killer was off screen and that made it more mysterious to me. Not seeing his face made me not know what would happen next. Whereas if I saw an actor there and he was seething and, you know, making faces when the victim wasn't looking at him, it would telegraph things more. But this... No, I never once felt like I was the killer. See, I, I definitely did, and I feel like it was a more honest depiction, honestly. I mean, if you're watching a slasher movie, chances are you do want to empathize with the killer. You do want to get off on doing it. So this movie is going to give that to you in a way few do. I think that that is ballsy. And I think when we have Red Lucy's death here, it's a stunner. And I love the fact that he really makes sure that the mannequin has her properties. I mean, she gets the lip ring, and when he takes that scalp home and puts it on, he's got a staple gun this time. He doesn't go with hammer and nails. I think that was a smart upgrade from the original. I liked one immense detail. 
flies. Yes. He's constantly spraying the mannequins with rain because flies are attracted to the dead flesh. And man, it's kind of weird that he poses as mannequins in lesbian poses, but then sprays them with rain. At first, I thought the mannequins were being bad and he was punishing them by spraying them with rain. But then he was. That is what's happening. No, he's spraying them with raid because the flies are interrupting the lesbian hotness. Mm, I didn't take it that way. Yeah, he's constantly spraying the flies with the raid. He brings Red Lucy home to meet his wife, who is in bed. They're both mannequins, but occasionally they're played by real actresses. And then he's interrupted by Anna, who is outside his store in the sunlight trying to peek underneath the grate. She wants to take pictures of the mannequins in the storefront, and they have their little dialogue. And after she points out the fact that he's got lipstick on his face and all of that, and he and she tries to get a peek at his bedroom, he goes back in a very anxious state and finds them in a lesbian pose. Right, but obviously he posed them that way. I don't even know that that's true. He sees them in that way. We don't know how these things are posed. We only know because we see only what he sees. True. They could be visions. They could be hallucinations. True, but I don't think the flies are hallucinations when no, you're keeping no, no. dead skin. No, I, I, and I, I do love that detail, not only because it's realistic. I mean, if you're going to keep scalps around, chances are pestilence is going to be a problem. But I also think it just shows that mental state of anxiety that he's in, that he's fogging everything with poison at that moment. It reflects his own mood there because he's really been jostled by Anna. And I didn't know that they'd keep this detail, but it's really made central this time. This romance, it isn't just a, a last girl flourish. Anna is really a, a major character in this story. She's French. I, th- I think that's Alexander Aja wanting to make reference to his home country, but she gets him in a way that nobody else in the world does. It's kind of what I picked up off last week with that character is that she snapped a photo of Joe Spinell and saw Joe Spinell when everyone else ignored him. Here, she in her own work, brings mannequins to life. And they bond over these mannequins in his storefront in a way that makes me believe they could have a relationship. But don't you find the fact that he's a mannequin restoration specialist just, like, adds to the creepiness of him? Well, certainly everyone else does. They think something is off about him. And I think so many people want to write him off as gay or odd. And boys that play with dolls, something's wrong. I think culturally, we have that stereotype. Well, and then, you know, when he is in his van with Red Lucy, you can see the hand swinging in the back of the van. There's a very brief scene and you're like, what the hell are those hands? And then it makes sense when you see him with Anna and the mannequins out front with the restoration. It starts off, his shop is closed and the steel door is halfway down in front of it. She's crouching beneath it, taking pictures inside his store. I again thought... Like I did the last movie, I again think he feels he's been discovered. Like her lens may have picked up what's going on in the back room. And I thought maybe he was going to try to get at her to cover his own ass. And I just thought it was almost too much of a coincidence that there are two people obsessed with mannequins. Is mannequins a thing outside of that Andrew McCarthy movie? Mannequin? Yeah. Okay. I hadn't really thought there were mannequin shops. I mean, I've been to LA. I've never seen a mannequin restoration center. Arnie, where do you think mannequins come from? China. Someone has to make them, but downtown LA really is a thriving arts community. There's a lot of people that bought lofts and a lot of people that make art projects that live in that area. It has a bohemian kind of 
Manhattan-y vibe. Back when Manhattan was affordable for artists, I don't think it has that vibe anymore. Oddly enough, I think that, yes, downtown LA is more like New York in the 1980s than Manhattan in 2012 is. But, yeah, my sense is that, yeah, she's just an art freak out taking pictures of mannequins in every store window. She happened to be at his. And because he's so good with them, she recognizes his artistic quality, and he recognizes her. She wants to borrow some. She says, I'll be a good mother to them, and I think that that, that's a trigger for him. Yeah, we've started seeing flashbacks, something the last movie didn't give us at all. Flashbacks of Frank with his mother, combing her hair and all kinds of stuff there. So I do get the feeling we're going to get more of that background, more of his mommy issues in this. But the motivation's mostly the same. An oversexed mother who is mean to her son, and the son becomes psychotic and whether it's causation or coincidence it's spelled out much more clearly here was his mother a hooker yes was she a hooker or a whore that's what i couldn't decide is a slut or a prostitute I took it to mean that she did it for money. I mean, I don't know how much money there was in mannequins, but we we see in some of the flashbacks that she's snorting cocaine with $100 bills. With two guys who are kissing each other as well as her, so I don't know if they paid her for their bisexual three-way or if she was just kinky. I really don't know. Would it make a difference in how you perceive her? Yeah, a little bit, actually, because... If she's doing it to keep the lights on, it seems somewhat more sympathetic than if she's just literally having sex on a sidewalk pushed up against a storefront because she cares so little about her son and he's watching all this sex and she knows he's watching and just tells him to be quiet. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, these aren't flashbacks, they are memories. We see them as flashbacks, but we know because he steps outside himself. Anytime he's in a dream state, he can see himself. He can see himself as a boy in these scenes. They have an actor playing young Frank watching all of this debased behavior here. His memory is, is that she preferred other men to him and that he wanted her love. That's the dime store psychology for why he's doing it. It's very much the same as last time. It's just more illustrated in this film, but I don't think it's a, a, a bit different. It's exactly the same. Yeah, the reasons are, but I just, I get more out of it through the flashbacks and seeing the mother's sexual ways and see why he would associate sex with bad things and being punished. And he, to jump to the end, we see him strangle his mother the way he strangles Red Lucy. Yeah, this movie is written. (laughs) I'm going to put it that way. We actually have a screenwriter where last time it felt like we had people kind of riffing and it just sort of came together in an improvised way. Here, I think you have a really smart script where, yeah, motifs come up. You know, he says hair is the last part of the body that disappears and he ends up giving Anna a locket that he made with, he calls it horse hair, but we know it must be from one of his victims. Yeah, we're seeing the psychosis play out and, you know, his memories of his mother's hair. There's someone here that is making more connections for us to look at. The screenwriter is doing his job. But can't go too long without a kill. And so we get our most, in my mind, horror movie feeling kill outside of the plot of the movie kill other than the very first one. I mean, it's just so random that he goes from this scene with Anna and the mannequins and now he's Following a gymnast doing some kind of scarf dance. I don't know what you call that. I've seen it in burlesque shows where people hang from the roof in like a a sheet. 
Yeah, it's, it's some kind of acrobatics. I don't know what it's called either, but there are clubs in downtown LA I've been in where all of a sudden women are dropping from the ceiling and doing this. Yes, that's it's a very nouveau thing people are doing in nightclub acts and dances like that. But when he's driving around LA, she was the jogger. Was it the same actress? I believe so. It looked very similar. I think he has a similar type, though. I mean, that's the thing, is that the, the police reports are running, and they're saying that it's Caucasian women from 20 to 30 years old here. I think he has a type. It could all be his mother, right? I mean, to him, he's just looking for a woman that looks like his mother here. I couldn't tell the difference, but yeah, she's close enough. He sees her in the window. The fact that she can do those tricks probably brings some unwanted attention to herself as well. <laughs> I figured he was a completist. He had a redhead. He is dating a blonde. Let's, you know, bring a brunette into it. That'd be why you would do it, right? <laughs> gotta have one yes. of all. <laughs> <laughs> but I gotta say, I love this setup because when we jump, and I love the editing in this movie, but when we jump, we're inside the closet watching her naked at the mirror. How many times have we seen this in a horror movie except that it's the victim hiding in the closet hoping that the killer doesn't find them? Here it's the reverse. We have the woman who thinks she hears something is coming towards the closet. We know when she opens those doors, she's going to get stuck just like Judy. And I had the same reaction that I have when, like, Laurie Strode is in the closet hiding from Michael Myers. I had that same, oh, don't open the closet, don't open the closet feel, but... I was like, don't open the closet or he'll kill you. And before, I'm like, don't open the closet or you'll kill her. So I still don't think I was feeling for him. I was feeling for her. But knowing where he was, seeing through the slats, gave it such a creepy feel. And it's a nice throwback to have her start to be kind of aware of his presence in the L.A. train station. I feel like that was a throwback to the last one. Yes. They're really going for that old one. And the random kill there, the kill of the nurse just coming out of her job, was in the subway station. Here, this dancer's just coming out of her practice gig. And where's he going to chase her? The subway. And it's the L.A. subway, so obviously it's completely deserted. <laughs> I've ridden it. And I got to say, yeah, it does feel like this. Sometimes you will ride it. And there'll only be like six other people on the platform. And where do they go once you start moving around? Around. This is very realistic, I gotta say. The way that this train is depicted, I love these callbacks. It's making me feel like, yeah, this is a really studied movie that took the best ideas or, or images from the last movie and is reworking them in clever ways. I wouldn't have thought that we were going to get a callback to the nurse and they don't do it fully. She doesn't run to the bathroom. By calling us back to the train, we think that she's going to run to the bathroom. No, she runs to the parking lot. Yeah, and it's really interesting because she's booking it in heels, makes a classic horror movie mistake because she goes into a parking lot with a fence around it that is locked. So not good for her right there. But this is the only kill in the entire two movies that kind of just my stomach went, oh, boy. And maybe it's just because of where it was, but he sliced her Achilles tendon to get her down. And that was just... Then we're all we're all in the same thing. Yeah, I literally made a noise when that happened. I mean, you can't not because the effects are very good in this movie, and it is just something we rarely see. We know it's coming because they cut, and we can see that we're underneath a car, and we can see that she's returned to the door that he came in, and and it's locked. She can't get out. We know what's going to happen here, but oh, it doesn't change the impact. 
And the fact that when he slices it, the way her leg moves off of her heel, off of her high heels, is just gut-sickingly inducing feeling. There are two moments of this movie that literally nauseated me. The first was in Red Lucy's apartment when he pukes. Yeah, I don't do well with puke. Oh, that was horrible. The second is this Achilles tendon cut. Oh my lord, because just such a way to turn her completely helpless. You can't run when that happens. She can barely crawl. And the way the ankle bends, the way she falls, she can't kick. She's in just agony. And they keep her ankle at a weird angle after that point. It is just... This gets even more heightened. I literally am jumping off the couch and cheering. Yes, me, the one that wants to side with this poor woman, this dancer who at best will never dance again, and at worst is going to be the next scalp. When he gets on top of her and slicing and scalping her and suddenly the camera is pulling away and he is seeing himself do it. Stroke of genius. That's what you think is going on is he's seeing himself do it. I wondered, I honestly think it was the film cheating. Like, we want to see it. No! This is the best scene in the whole movie. It is incredible. The dissociation has been literally visualized. You could do all the psychobabble you want. By doing it this way, we get it, and it's amazing. You think that's what it is, is a dissociative effect, and not just the film feeling we need to see his face as he, I mean, he's having an orgasm. He is coming while he does this. No, and I get it, and I am too. I mean, me, I'm with this killer. I'm loving this savagery. I am so into this scene. And then, icing on top of icing, he takes the scalp, walks over the car, and we see his reflection in it, and it's the poster from the original movie. You saw it, yes. That's something that I picked up on, and I'm just like, oh, crap. Genius. This scene is genius. I love this movie at this point. I didn't take it as the dissociation, the psychological reasons, but I did like the scene, and Elijah works very well as this maniacal killer. I think, though, yeah, I think he's faking an orgasm there. I mean, the way he shudders, the way he shivers, the face he makes as he is killing her. I think we are making it overt that it's sexual. And I like that we pull out. It's It happens one other time, too, but that we get to see him do it. Dissociation, that's a good possible reason for it. I can now see that, whereas before I just thought that the filmmakers weren't comfortable just constantly showing us the deaths in first person. Give him some credit. These guys are smart. Asha is doing lots of clever callbacks and moves here. He put the poster in here. He's pulling these callbacks here. He didn't just make a mistake or do something just because it would be cool. He's definitely aware and in control of of what's going on here. And I love the, the next scene. How do you follow up a scene like that? He's sculpting breasts on a fake mannequin, and Anna is taking pictures of it. I mean, Just the editing and juxtaposition in this movie, it's great. Every scene becomes more delicious than the next. And he's making critical serial killer mistakes, though, here again, because he's allowing himself to be photographed, and he's going to end up in an art show. And he's lending mannequins for the art show, which are very interesting because they're faceless. By her request. Yes. 
to be fair, he, he, normally I think he wants them to have a face. He wants them to be real. What we end up finding out is that basically this is his way of preserving people, that he doesn't want to be abandoned. His mother abandoned him. So the way to keep her and everyone else that he loves, quote unquote, in his life is to turn them into a mannequin. I love the fact that the reason she wanted the faceless mannequins was to project her face onto them. I'm like, that is such like a fetish. That would, I mean, for him, just he has been taking these women who he sexualizes and turning them into real mannequins. Now this real woman is turning herself into mannequins. I figure he's going to totally get off on that. But she's not available. This is a, a brilliant flourish. They've been teasing this for a while. She asked him, they were on a lunch date in MacArthur Park, and she asked him, what does your girlfriend feel about all of this? Because she saw him earlier and he had lipstick smeared on him. He just figured that your girlfriend is in the back room, not your bloody mannequins are in the back room. But that sets off his migraines. You know, he, anytime you ask about his personal relationship, it sets off his mania here. She has a boyfriend she hasn't mentioned. She just presumes that they're platonic friends. But she thinks nothing of going to a movie date with him and then saying, want to meet my boyfriend afterwards for a drink. But this is a deal breaker. I'm wondering at this point, is Frank going to kill Jason? And I thought that this was really cruel of her and it's a very cruel trick because she led him on this entire way. And you really thought he was kind of developing something with her like he was in the original movie with Anna. They were going on dates until he got the headache like he does with Anna here in the park. And it's it's just it was not a nice twist, but interesting because like you, I thought for sure her boyfriend was going to get it. Yeah, I think she's honestly using him. He didn't want to rent the mannequins. He says he likes to find them good homes, which is when she says she'll be an adoptive mother. Not just a mother, but an adoptive mother. And I think she's leading him on so that she can use him to get the mannequin she needs to further her career. She, I mean, you don't go out for food. You don't go walking in the park and feeding the ducks and go to a nighttime movie with a guy. And then after all that, go, want to meet my boyfriend? That's kind of a shitty thing to do. See, but we're all seeing it from his perspective. To him, this is romance. To her, it's creative collaboration. Her boyfriend's into music. She doesn't do music. Here's somebody who can understand her art. I totally get how she could just be into Frank because they're into the same ideas as artists. I don't see that she was leading him on and manipulating for the mannequins. I guess that's a possible reading, but my take on it is that he overreacted. She assumed he had girlfriends, and other people assume he's gay. They had no idea that he had this obsession with Anna. You didn't take the, what does your girlfriend think, as a feeling out to see if he has indeed a girlfriend or something, or something like that. I am seeing it from Frank's point of view. I am influenced by the thoughts of the previous movie, but I thought they were dating. It's not collaborative to go sit by the ducks and to go see a movie. There was, you know, that's- I thought it was romance as well. Dr. Caligari, you take a date to see the 1919 silent horror movie, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? I wouldn't do that to anyone. I've seen that movie. I not recommend. <laughs> I, I like the movie, but it is a product of its time. I love that they come out of it and she's like, I thought the girl would be dead at the end. I mean, they're obviously playing on how this movie is going to end. And then he says, 
it, but it's a happy ending because they all end up in the mental institution. To him, being with Anna in a mental institution would be a happy way for all of this to end. I wondered if that is how it would end. I wondered how it would all go based upon that scene. I wondered how much they were foreshadowing. But I knew she was the last girl, not only because of last week's movie, but because of how this one's playing. So I knew she was going to live. I I was wrong. But (laughs) when she said, I thought the girl would die at the end, I thought she was saying she thought she would die at the end. Yep. Indeed, we don't know. As much as this movie is pretty much following the original, I am not convinced she's going to get a shovel and get away at a graveyard at the conclusion of this, particularly when they introduce Jason, who, in a bit of race baiting, he's black and scary and intimidating. He actually, we see him in a urinal, he washes his hands, and then he wipes his hands on Frank and calls him a gay boy that plays with dolls. And I thought maybe that their relationship, Jason and Anna, they had this happen all the time where she likes to hang out with gay men or other artists and Jason hates it. And this is his way of dealing with it is demeaning them. I kind of think it is. I mean, look at later on, we meet her next door neighbor who's been helping her set up for the show and he's a gay actor and yeah. things like that. So, But everyone in LA is an actor, Ernie. Yeah, but they're not all gay, but no. the neighbor was. And- I think that might have been the case. It's just he's used to talking down to those people. I'm kind of surprised that, I guess because of the lipstick, Anna never thought Frank was gay. That would have been a different reading is if Anna had thought Frank was gay the whole time and then they were just hanging out like friends in that way. But because she knew he would have had a girlfriend or had the lipstick or whatever, I still do think she was leading him on. And this, I think for sure Jason's going to get it, right? I mean, that just seems like the way to go. But Frank, he might be afraid. We talked about it in depth last week about men attacking men versus men attacking women. He channels his rage to an old woman who's equally insulting, I might add, Rita, keeping the name of the person met at a photo shoot, in this case, a photo exhibition, Anna's agent is now Rita, and she's, <laughs> I, I did laugh out loud, though, when she's like, I have another artist I represent who likes to smash useless things. Maybe he can have your mannequins. Yeah, it's, yeah, you know, you want her to get it. At this point, I am looking forward to Rita getting killed, because, yeah, she's horrible. She doesn't even like Anna's work. She calls it creepy. Yeah, she's just an agent. You know, she just wants to make money off of this. She's not into their art ideas at all. Yeah, I was rooting for her to get it, and she got a delightful kill also, because it was very Final Destination. You thought maybe she was going to be drowned. Yeah, because, I mean, the whole tub scene, so creepy. First, old lady nude. Second- She wasn't that old. Yeah, come on, be nice. She looked pretty good for, what, 50? 55, 60, I don't know. Then the whole bubble bath scene, she's covering her own face with a washcloth, reaching for her wine, and he pushes it to her, (laughs) and then puts his hand in the water. Oh, so fucking creepy. He's feeling the bubbles in between her legs. It's erotic. I'm telling you, this scene is actually erotic. I'm actually aroused watching this scene. It's This movie has so many subtle details. I'm blown away at how much I'm enjoying this movie by this point, even though I know what they're doing. It's a copy of a copy, and I still am just like, what? 
what's going to happen next. Yeah, when he pushes that wine glass to her, just because he's afraid she'll take off the towel and and reach for it instead and see him, brilliant. And then the next scene, she's hogtied on the bed. Again, I mentioned this last week, but that is like one of the classic S&M kind of ties, right? When you tie the wrists behind the back to the ankles like that. It's called hogtie. Right, but I didn't know that. A lot of listeners may not have known what you meant, but again... Not my thing. Seen it on some DVD covers, though. She's so defenseless at this point. You're feeling for her. You didn't like her as a character, but now, each scalping has been a little different. Sometimes he's had to really cut in there, and he takes a long while to whittle it down. Sometimes he can just rip it on off. This is the first time we're seeing a scalping where the person is still alive. Yeah, that was really, really good. And I like how he draws on her back with the knife and his- that. That was perhaps the worst thing for me. Even worse than the Achilles tendon was the light cuts on the back. Because, I mean, we've all cut ourselves with a knife. We know how bad that hurts. And there's that moment where you're like, oh, it's not that bad. And then blood just starts seeping out of it. And it doesn't hurt for a moment. And then you feel it like a bad paper cut with a sharp blade. It was one of the few times in a horror movie where I can relate to the wound being inflicted. And so I think I really related to what Rita was going through there. I'm just like, oh, that's fucking gotta hurt. And it's not even bad enough that you're gonna have relief from death. How long is he going to torture her? It feels like an eternity. And he gets so creepy. She's like, please don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to keep you. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, again, I mean, I think he's found the one at this point. I mean, he's been looking for his mother. She's the oldest one in his profile beyond the statistics he's been hunting up to this point. He even has lines saying things like, you think you can fool me. You didn't think I'd recognize your disguise. Well, I think that this could be it. The mother has been found. I didn't really think... He found her as his mother, but yet all of them are his mother, aren't they? I mean, in the end, his mother was younger than this person, at least in all the sex scenes we see. Yeah. I don't believe he's going to kill Anna, ever. I honestly think that for she gets a pass just by being Anna, the angel. That's what I'm thinking. I think this could be the last kill that he ever makes. And after he scalps her, I mean... He starts shouting at his mother, you will not go out tonight. That's right off the poster from the first one, right? I told you not to go out tonight. Yeah, all the callbacks are good here. I feel like this movie makes more sense. There's actually more to it this time. Again, I credit the screenwriting. I agree. There's, this actually feels like a movie. The last one, that was why it was a weak recommend is because it was just kind of pornographic. This feels cinematic. Yeah, I think that's a good way of distinguishing them. And another way of distinguishing them is last time Anna got called up and she's like, thanks for coming to the funeral of Rita. Want to go out on a date? And now we have an Anna that's actually grieving. She's upset about the fact that her agent got butchered. And Frank just can't understand why. He comes over trying to, you know, give her a massage and blow the gay neighbor out of there so that he can finally have her. Relieved to know that Jason broke up with her. And that the reason why he was such a dick to him that night was because they had been in a fight. Do you think he could have fucked her? Or would he have killed her like Red Lucy? Because I think when the pants came off, he'd choke her just like... I, I don't think he can have... Sex without death. I think she's a trophy, though. See, and I'm willing to say, with Rita dead, I think that he could get it up, and I think he could be with her in a normal way. I think that this could be a normal relationship. If he hadn't made the slip of the tongue, they could be dating. I think she's a little overreacting for the death of her agent, too. (laughs) Yeah, she didn't even get her a gig in New York. 
Yeah. She blames herself like, I should have walked her home. Do you always walk your agent back to her apartment after a show? I, I think she's a little hard on herself. But I like that Anna is smart. She catches it. When Frank goes, she only lived three blocks away. But Frank's smart, too. He tries to cover it. Like, I offered her a ride, something like that. And for someone who she's been hanging out with and was kind of moaning seconds earlier when he's rubbing her back and allowing him to take off her top, she gets instantly suspicious very quickly. That tide turned so fast. It's like, you're rubbing my back, I'm enjoying this, and we're going to have sex. Oh my god, you're a murderer! Yeah, well, he mentions the other girls. I think that's even a bigger mistake than... Yeah, he could have recovered from I Knew Where She Lived, but he made the connection to other girls that had been murdered. They had never discussed a serial killer in downtown Los Angeles. That had never been a part of her even awareness. Uh, We know because he pays attention to the headlines. I don't think she does. And so for him to make that link... Yeah, you you would realize pretty soon you wouldn't want a a back rub anymore, at at the very least. I do think that the jump, as much as it seems to be, and again, we're saying Frank's perspective, but as much as it's in the media, I don't think that leap was too much to make. But then again, I'm not remembering off the top of my head, no pun intended, if Frank knew (laughs) she was scalped. (laughs) I mean, Frank knew, but did Anna know that Rita was killed and scalped, killed by a serial killer, or just that someone was waiting for her in her apartment. Because the other thing, I think Frank has a airtight alibi, because what Anna says is someone was in her apartment while the show was going on and killed her when she got back. So since everyone saw Frank at the show, why would anyone think it's Frank? But we're getting to the end of the movie, Anna's gotta get suspicious, and she plays it pretty smart. I mean, she asks him to leave and when he won't, I think that confirms everything. They might have, if he had gone, okay, okay, I don't know what your problem is, gone home and given her a phone call, it might have worked, but he doesn't think normally and I love the camera work. I mean, she is pleading with him, she's afraid. He's staring at her tits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and there's some good fight choreography here too. I mean, they they position the camera in a way like she gets thrown back through tables and he's knocked down. I mean, it's interesting to see a fight in which one of the people duking it out is the camera. She breaks the curse of the female in horror movies because she was smart enough to grab a knife and she just goes to town on him too. Stabs him through the hand. Yeah. Ah, like calling back to his first kill when he stabbed through the chin. Just mm. That is Elijah's hand. He insisted on being the stabbed hand at that point. This was a good fight scene though too. With her being drugged through the glass. She had the knife for a while. She managed to get a good stab in. The neighbor, when Martin comes in and he gets the hatchet to the face and you think he's dead. Oh, how is he not dead? Well, it's just your jaw. Yeah, basically he just got a a wider smile. He's got the commercial (laughs) tomorrow. He booked his first national for toothpaste. He'll he'll look great. Yeah, he's fine. It's like, love that Joker, Smilex kind of thing. Yeah. But when he gets up and he comes back at Frank and his jaw's flapping and he's got the baseball bat. Oh, my God. That was cheering. Cheering at this point. This movie can do no wrong. And and he throws him through the door. She's locked herself in the bathroom. It's the neighbor coming to her rescue that actually allows little Elijah Wood to get through that big door. He never would have otherwise. This whole scene is great. So intense. The first person isn't adding to it for me because there's a lot of cutting. It's jumping around a lot. I think they have to for all the action they're doing. But man, am I so wondering what's going to happen to Frank? What's going to happen to Anna? And 
I was shocked she didn't get away. He bags her. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the shower curtain, psycho callback there. He, I guess he thinks he suffocated her. We see his reflection in the window. She stops moving. He's driving her body in the back seat of his van. But by the time he gets back home, it's morning. I guess she's recovered. She's alive or, or been playing dead and comes at him. Yeah, she's not your stupid heroine of a horror movie. Yeah, I thought she was dead. So when she moved and, again, smart, replaced her body with a mannequin, so he thinks there's still a body there. Mm-hmm. You're kind of rooting for her at this point, where the other people I didn't root for, she's fought so hard. She deserves to live. Yes. So we must kill her. Yes. Uh, she gets in a stranger's car, and this isn't going to be House of a Thousand Corpses or Texas Chainsaw remake. The person in the car is not in on it, so I think she's clearly going to escape, just like Anna did in the last one. The car crashes. I don't even know necessarily why the car crashed. The car hits Frank. She tried to get him. Yeah, because she was running over yeah. Frank. Yeah, she grabbed the steering wheel. She presumably put her leg over and hit the gas. She wasn't trying to get away. She was trying to run him over. Okay, that's what I didn't understand is that she caused the accident. Yes. Okay, because she could have escaped, but her anger and vengeance, desire yeah. to run him over, took her own life. Yeah, exactly. She didn't have her seatbelt on, as as we see. She's thrown through that car. I don't even think the driver who did have their seatbelt in is going to make it, but Mm-mm. he looked dead. She's barely hanging over on when he limps over to her and starts the scalping process, and next thing we know, he's down on bit of D. Yeah. Anna, let me introduce you to my mother. I love that line as he's scalping her, though. Just, <laughs> mm. And we'll be together forever. He has a wedding ring. Mm-hmm. Never knew he was the marrying type. How sweet. It takes the right girl. And there's so many. I love the fact that he's embarrassed about his past. That, like, he's bringing the bride mannequin back to his bedroom to show mother, and all the other ones are there, and they're starting to come to life. We've forgotten about Red Lucy. We've forgotten about the dancer. We forgot about Judy. But they're here now, and I suddenly realize, oh my god, they're gonna do the ending to Maniac, the original, as well. They're gonna go for it. We're gonna see a POV of a torn head. But it's different. This time they ripped the flesh off. And it's like a reverse Pinocchio. They rip off the flesh and underneath, he is a mannequin. That is, I mean, we've seen it before. There was a really cool moment where like he has a dream sequence where he thinks below the waist he is a mannequin, you know? Yeah, that was a cool scene. It's like he sees it coming. I found that really creepy to see too. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, It was very alarming. Not just that he has no genitalia, but the seams. The waist and leg seams that the mannequin has. So when they rip off the face, a great effect. I can only guess they put a latex face of Elijah over Elijah to do this. It's, again, third-person perspective. We're not seeing hands come at our face. We're seeing his face ripped off. We're done with first-person perspective now. The rest of the movie is going to be third-person, and we see the face ripped off and the mannequin underneath. Yeah, whenever he's dreaming, we we could see him. And I just took it to mean that obviously this didn't happen. We see that, much like the original, a SWAT team comes in and none of this violence that we saw actually happened. It was all his imagining. So it's fair game that he can see himself in his dying moments. Maybe he's leaving his own body. Or maybe it's just another maniacal dream. But either way... We don't get the eyes opening, so I believe Frank to be dead. I don't think we're going to get Maniac 2, although this film was, I kind of would have liked it. Yeah, this is a really good film, but can you capture the magic again? I mean, that's the thing with a sequel. You run that risk. Can you make something that is even better than the first one? 
of all of these great callbacks they've done, and it's like a scream level, like, dissertation of the original Maniac. They've broken that film back and done all these cool callbacks. The one that they missed, the one that I so wanted to happen at the end. At the end, they cut away to like an 80s pop song. All the music is done by this French guy, Rob, or whatever. And it's fun. It's it's cool. It's got that 80s aesthetic. But man, shouldn't they have done Michael Cimbello? Because I don't know if you guys know this or not, but that song from Flashdance... Not what a feeling, but maniac, maniac, you know, that that one, the legend has it that Sam Bellow saw the original 1980 Lustig movie and wrote it in honor. So wouldn't that have been fun to have here? I think we need to do a correction for a five-year-old podcast, Stuart. I think in our first retrospective series, first episode, Friday the 13th, part one. I think we talked about how I thought Michael Sambella, what I had heard is he wrote that for Friday the 13th. Yes, yeah. And I think you corrected me on that show and said, no, it was for this other film called Maniac. Mm -hmm. Well, on the 30th anniversary Blu-ray of Maniac, they got Michael Cimbello on there along with the actual songwriter. And they're like, no, not anything to do with this movie. This has been twisted. It's something Frank Spinell kept going to people and saying. And Spinell, I guess, knew Bruckheimer, who did Flashdance. Yeah, he knew everyone. Of course he did. But they actually did. And I recommend grabbing the Blu-ray for this. What they said was they just saw a newspaper headline about a killer and they were the songwriter was having a bad day and they decided to make a joke song. I mean, they got together and they're like, play the worst chords you know. <laughs> then they did this and they had it, you know, uh, he's a maniac and he will kill your cat and nail it to the door. But then they do a full performance of it on a piano. They like sing the entire song about with the original maniac lyrics. So that's worth seeing, but it has no relation to this movie, despite the urban legend. I still would say I would enjoy this movie even more. Icing atop icing atop icing as we finish out with that song. I'm sure Michael Sambella wouldn't mind the cash. They could have bought that one. This movie had a budget. It might have been owned by the people who did Flashdance, too, at that point. But I would have liked them to pull out the song that they did in 1980s Maniac during the photo shoot. That was a jazzy little number, too. Go into a showdown. Yeah, I love that one. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been fun, too. I'm down with it. I'm down with this movie. Well, Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Maniac? Marjorie. Absolutely. I had my doubts because Elijah Wood, gonna be in a horror movie, and this is exactly why he did this kind of movie, because people would doubt that he could do it. I think he was good. He was creepy. He emoted like this pained expression a lot of the time. The kills were phenomenal. I think they had enough throwbacks into the original to make it a good remake, whereas a lot of remakes just completely ignore the original and just take the name. This was very good. Same names, some similar throwbacks in the kills. I thought it was really well made. The point of view really didn't annoy me. I don't think it added anything. But it was kind of neat that you didn't actually see Frank head on until like way into the movie. So that was kind of fun. But I do recommend this. I think it's great. It's a great psychological horror movie. Stuart. Yeah, I'm going to second that. I love this movie, and I did not expect that. Going in as a reboot to a movie that I begrudgingly recommended, I never, I never watch a horror movie wanting to be a killer hacking up women. So I hope that viewers understand when I say this, I adored being in this perspective. I thought it was great fun to allow myself to be a maniac. And I think this movie visually captures that in a way few do. I think it's got great gore. It's got good performances. It's got a real cleverness to the way that it unfolds. You never quite know what's happening, even if you know the original. I think if you 
love the original, you're going to like this. And I think, yeah, if you're skeptical of a hobbit with a knife, you're going to be really surprised at how effective this movie really is. It's a high recommend. Honestly, this may be up there with the best slashers I've ever seen. Three for three on strong recommends. And I went in so skeptical. On the first one, I was, eh. Yeah, it's, it's a good gore, good kills, but I was not sure it needed a remake. Despite the entire premise of now playing, how many remakes are really all that good? And the cover art of this one, it looked a little artsy for me. French people making it. I was afraid, especially with the first person perspective, it would be too much about technique and not enough about it being a good horror movie. Plus, I was really afraid it would feel found footage. And that's something that just grates on me. I want my movies to look cinematic. And... I'm going to reiterate what I said before. I never felt like I was in the mind of a killer. If I did, it was so subtle, it was completely subconscious. I just liked the suspense that the first person camera gives. I at no point felt like I was a killer. I never got that kind of visceral thrill or fear or whatever from this. I don't even want to propagate that thought because god forbid some parent group hear this and go oh my god this movie's telling people how to kill and what it feels like to be a killer and we must ban it because that happens so i never had that i just liked the gimmick it is a gimmick but i thought it added to the mood of the piece without making me feel like i am a killer any more than i ever felt like i was a killer playing wolfenstein doom or quake you know it worked for this movie and it is artistically satisfying it is so great the way it brings back the callbacks to the first movie the way it looks i said that at the very beginning the colors the cinematography i love all of that but more than a technical phenomenon and i can't even imagine all the rigmarole they'd have to go through to make a first person movie like this you talked about three people being the character of frank that's crazy but i don't care if the movie's no good and this is a good movie this is a suspenseful movie and it's a great horror movie and yeah I gotta think really hard, and I'm not gonna answer on this podcast, but it might be my favorite slasher film that we have reviewed on this show. And, I mean, it's up there among the best movies we've reviewed on this show. It is up there with Memento and Fight Club for me. Wow. wow. I, I wouldn't go that far, but I, when I'm thinking about the heavyweights, like Halloween or Scream, this might be the best. Yeah, certainly above Scream. Certainly above the original Halloween. The things I'm kind of comparing it to would be... A few of the Friday the 13th, maybe. What? Nightmare on Elm Street. Ugh. Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is up here with this one. But yeah, it's still great, great movie. And I need to let it settle to see how, if it ends up lowering in my esteem over time. But right now, this is one of the favorite movies that we've ever reviewed in five years of Now Playing. I'm glad to hear it. I do think it's terribly underrated. I mean, this thing, it was released last summer, but I'm glad we didn't cover it then because I think it only came out in like three theaters in the entire country. It was basically shuttled off straight to VOD. I, I feel like not enough people know about it and, and too many people probably think it's something they're not going to like. I know for a fact that's the case because there have been a handful of listeners who are like, you promised Maniac last year. Why haven't you done it yet? And it didn't get video release in time for us to do the shows. We did Insidious instead. And now that 
when they finally start coming out, some listeners are like, why haven't you done it? But when we announced it, it seems like a lot more listeners are like, why are you doing it? We didn't yeah. care. Well, I'm so glad that those few listeners, and we always listen to our listeners when they say what they want us to review. It was maybe five people who said, why didn't you do Maniac? Such a small percentage, but enough for me to say when we had two weeks on the schedule, let's go back and do Maniac. Thank you, you five listeners, because you've introduced me to one of my all-time favorite horror films now, plus another one that I just really will enjoy going back to, and more just... People who like horror films, having them react to what Tom Savini did there. I'll certainly have that as a movie to watch the reactions of other people as they watch it. Here's the thing. I don't know that I would go back and watch that original 80s one again. It upset me so much that I just, I don't know what, what mood I would need to be in in order to want to do that to myself again. But this second one, that's entertainment. The first one, it's just potent. Yeah, I don't know that I'd rewatch the first one. Maybe around Halloween I could see myself rewatching it, just because I always dig out horror movies then, and that one could go into the rotation for its level of gore. But when I'd mostly bring it out is to show it to somebody who hadn't seen it, so I could watch them watch it. But that is it for Maniac. Next week, let's change up the tone a little bit. Let's do a Rat Pack film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little something more holiday appropriate. The party that is Ocean's Eleven. I do feel like... Yeah, whether it's Frank Sinatra and the gang or George Clooney in New Hollywood, it's all about having a good time in the next four weeks of now playing when we cover Ocean's Eleven 1960, Ocean's Eleven 2001, Ocean's 12, and Ocean's 13. Yeah, that takes us into the new year. And in the new year, you will not be able to get our current Donation Drive podcast. The Donation Drive ends December 31st. So if you have been excited for The Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies, that review will be coming next week for silver and platinum level donors ending our Lord of the Rings retrospective series. Six very long Peter Jackson films, although I almost feel like we'll have to do an addendum when the even longer cut of Battle of the Five Armies comes out. <laughs> Let's make no promises on that, but we can promise you this Friday you get Smaug or, or Smog or whatever, the dragon one, and then next week, yeah, we will wrap it up. For a silver level donation, you get reviews of the six Peter Jackson films. That's $15 or more. For a platinum level donation, you get those six plus the three bonus Hobbit animated reviews. All your money goes into making this show the best it can be. So we thank you in advance for your support. Also for the platinum level donors, you get the seven Leprechaun films, which you could also get just with a $15 gold donation if you don't want to hear us talk Hobbit. But how could you not want to hear us talk more alive? Wood after reviewing Maniac and find out if we <laughs> thought he was as good of a hobbit as he is a killer. Uh, a bit different audience, but uh, I like the fact that Elijah can straddle the difference. So, Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me, and I gotta stop or they'll take you away from me. <laughs> really I really thought she was gonna get killed at the end. I'm glad that she didn't. Yeah, but they all end up living in a mental hospital. I know, but at least it was a happy ending. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Maniac Retrospective Series. People die, but in a painting or a picture, they're yours forever. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I had a very lovely evening. Did you uh, want to come up for a drink? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week 
as we review another Maniac film. Honestly, I just find the whole thing really creepy. In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of series such as G.I. Joe, Transformers, Tron, Terminator, Star Trek, Spider-Man, The Avengers, and more. Anything you want. I want you to have a good time. You can also find individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Fight Club, Godzilla, Pacific Rim, and more. You got to stop. Oh, they'll take you away from me. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. No kidding. You'll be there. Yes, and so will five million other guys. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. It's not all for art's sake, you know. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Could you give me a hand? Yeah, sure. What do you need? A hand behind you. Now Playing's Maniac Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Stop looking at me. Focus on your work. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You talking to me? I'm talking to you. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Now promise me you won't tell. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. You knew they didn't love you. Not like I loved you. Not like me. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'm, I'm just gonna ask you to leave now. Please. Being alone isn't going to help you. Believe me. I know. They don't know when to stop. They never know when to stop. That's why they have to be stopped. It is, you're right. You're right. But not like that. Not that way. Please. They'll take you away from me. You have to be careful. Not to listen to me. We can't live like this. I have to go out. And each time it's like this. I get so scared that they'll take you away. But they won't, if you do what I say. They won't take you away, not ever. Not ever, I swear. Not ever. Maniac, starring Elijah Wood. Arnazeter? Arnazeter. Nora Arnazeter. Genevieve Alexandra. Directed. Fuck these names. <laughs> by Frank. Is it Frank? Yeah, Frank Calfon. Calfon. F R A N C K. It's like an extra letter in there. <laughs> I know why Elijah would do it. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> You're so punny. <laughs> Going back to Psycho, like we talked about with the original, Anthony Hopkins was a very, very 
unassuming man, very kind, had a kind voice. Anthony Perkins. Anthony, what? Anthony Hopkins. You think of Hannibal. He, 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 yeah. he can be kind, but usually he's eating your liver with yeah. bottom meat. Yes, me, the one that wants to side with this poor woman, this dancer who, at best, will never dance again. Her guilty feet have got no rhythm. That is Elijah's hand. He insisted on being the stabbed hand at that point. Was he also the hand that rubbed up Red Lucy? No, actually, he it's the cameraman. Maxime got to do all of that. He was like, yeah, he's Italian. He He's a professional. <laughs> oh, they're going to do the ending from the original Mannequin 2. The one with Herman's head? <laughs> they're going to do the ending to the... to the. Uh, they're also going to do the ending to the original mannequin. Oh, man, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Kim Cattrall's going to come out. Starship's going to play. Nothing's going to stop him now. I, tears are in my eyes. That, that's when I realized, oh, they're going to do the ending to mannequin. Maniac! <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's when I... Re- stop laughing. <laughs> Sorry, third time's a laugh buster. <laughs> That's when I realized. <laughs> <laughs>